Hello and welcome to episode seven of the Churchology Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holmes, and today on the show, we are talking to A.J. Sherrill about his brand new book, The Enneagram and Spiritual Formation. Now, maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, what's the Enneagram? Well, AJ actually answers that question in our interview, but I want to go ahead and point you to the show notes because there you're going to find some links for you to actually take the Enneagram. So as you're listening to this, or maybe even before you start listening to the episode, you just want to go ahead and check out what the Enneagram is. AJ, during the episode, recommends some places that you can go and take the Enneagram. We've put links to those in the show notes, so you can go ahead and check that out if you want to. But let's jump right into today's interview with A.J. Sherrill on the Churchology Podcast. All right. Well, today we are excited to have A.J. Sherrill with us today. A.J. is the pastor at St. Peter's Church, and he is an adjunct professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's got a brand new book that's about to come out called The Enneagram and Spiritual Formation. AJ, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, really honored. I'll clarify for your listeners. Uh, when you say St. Peter's Church, that's not the one in the Vatican. Uh, there's <laughs> a guy who's there right now. Uh, it's an it's a sort of a low church, Anglican church church. Uh, and it's actually a new post for me. I've just recently moved from Grand Rapids and uh, live now in Charleston. So anyways, I thought I, thought I might just clarify because I uh, just want to not lead anyone astray thinking that uh, I'm the Pope that you're talking to, because uh, I am not. <laughs> That's a good call. Good, Nonetheless. Good call. <laughs> so AJ, your book, like we said, is, is The Enneagram and Spiritual Formation. Yeah, And uh, for anybody that's watching this, uh, that's listening, and the Enneagram is, is completely fresh to them. They, they are unaware of what that is. Um, and <laughs> I know it's a huge question. Mm-hmm. What is the Enneagram? Yeah, well, I think the best way to talk about it is to start with what isn't the okay. Enneagram. Um, and, you know, the, there's a, like everything else in our culture right now, there's polar opposite beliefs. Uh, one belief, which which is not correct, is that it's witchcraft, it's new age, it's you know some sort of mystic tool that wants to lead us to Satan, and the other side wants to replace Jesus with it in the church because it's become so trendy. And I don't really buy into either of those. Uh, the Enneagram is well, the iteration we have now is has been developed, but uh, the bones of it go back thousands of years. Even our desert fathers and mothers gleaned from these sorts of ideas, uh, you think about the seven deadly sins, um, you know, there were actually eight or nine at the time, but um, it's a type, a typology, if you will, of what's motivating your behavior. Um, So it gives you nine basic types um, and it's more complicated than that, but it's also, it can be uh, at least stepped into the shallow end of the pool to understand a little bit more. Think about it as nine types. So think about it like a clock that has nine numbers um, and each type sort of helps people understand, oh, in that, I mean, we have all the types in us, but there's one type that sort of is the core that you default to in your patterns of your thinking, of your emotions, of your will. And so the Enneagram gives us a lot of information about things we don't know, we don't know about ourselves. And so um, it's not just behaviors, though, which is what I like about it. It's the motives that drive our behaviors. So uh, 
I got into it because it started helping me understand more about my own default patterns, my own sort of proclivities uh, to do this or to do that and why, what's underneath that. Um, and it's just been a really helpful tool for spiritual formation for me, which is, you know, what I've been doing for the last five to seven years in my ministry. So, yeah. Cause I know when some people talk about the Enneagram, they, they try to reduce it down just to another personality test. This is not, mm -hmm. this is not Myers-Briggs. This is not some other personality test that people might have in their minds. Is it? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I mean, I, I really like both of those. Um, mm -hmm. I love Myers-Briggs. I think this is just another tool. It's neutral, by the way. It's not Christian. It's not atheist. It's not new age. The Enneagram is a neutral tool like money. Money's neutral, but it depends on what you do with it. The Enneagram is kind of the same way for me. Um, and, you know, the difference is imagine there's an iceberg, right? You see that, that sort of image. You've probably seen that image before where you can see what's above the water surface. What's above the water surface are your behaviors. That's typically what people test for. That's typically Myers-Briggs. A lot of these other behavioral theories that are really helpful but what the Enneagram is, is actually what's below the surface. So I, I mentioned motives already. It's what you're not seeing that's driving you toward what you can see, those behaviors on top of the water in that iceberg. So like, I'll give you an example. Two people can actually do the same thing, show the same behavior, but actually can do it for two different reasons. So that's why we don't type other people because we don't have access to their motives as to why they do what they do. And often, here's the crazy thing. We don't even have access to ourselves. You know, we kind of shove a lot of things under the rug or we bury it in our subconscious, what's known as the shadow side. And we spend a lot of time suppressing things that are hard for us to face because life is traumatic, life's painful. We don't like to look back. It's, you know, we're tired, we're exhausted. We don't have time to dig into why we do what we do. But when we actually find that space and time to dig into some of the shadow side, some of the things that's underneath the surface of the water, that's where we can become really um, where it just gets more helpful in terms of how we can grow into Christ likeness when we begin to understand some of our mischief. Yeah. Can you go a little deeper into that? Why, why do you think it's important for us to understand our motives mm -hmm. even to, and we, we can unpack this here in a little bit, you know, when you talk about knowing our shadow side, yeah. why do you, why do you think that those things are, are important? Because as Christians, we, we can talk a lot about behavior. Yeah. You know, and, and, and doing spiritual disciplines yeah. and have no idea like what you said of, of what's under the surface. Why, why, why is that important? I, mean, I think Jesus is getting at this a lot with like, let's just take the, the typical trope of the Pharisees. You know, he's telling them they're actually whitewashed tombs. It's because we can actually do things behaviorally think we're and think we're X, Y, Z. <laughs> when God says, well, actually, because of your motives, your PQR, right? Yeah. So it seems that riddled all the way down to our motives, God is very interested in who we are and what we're doing. And for us to become clear of, you know, when you look at the transformation of Nicodemus, this is a guy who comes to Jesus in the dark, who ostensibly has done all the right things. Even Saul that later converts to Paul says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was, you know, he dragged out his resume and then only to realize like, wow, all the things that were guiding my behavior were actually really misguided and not actually um, the fruit of the kingdom, but really the fruit of my ego. So, and even as a pastor, you know this, Mark, like we can do all the right things on a stage or whatever, whatever. And, you know, we're going to be judged more strictly as teachers of yeah. people that are like, hey, what was actually driving you to serve in that way? Because it might actually be self-serving. So that kind of stuff is really helpful when it comes to living a life of integrity or character or virtue. And Jesus is very much interested in who we are, are all the way into our soul.
Yeah. Can you unpack, talk about how the Enneagram has helped you in your yeah. formation? Well, I first learned it from a monk named Father Richard Rohr. Years ago, I was in his home for a week and um, he started just, he just uh, off, made an offhand comment. And I was like, wait, 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 go back there. We need to talk about that. And so we spent several hours talking about Enneagram. <laughs> I'd never heard of it before. This was seven, eight years ago. Um, and so from there, what was helpful for me is unlike like strength finders, if you've ever taken that personality test, it started not just naming things that um, are to be celebrated, um, but also naming things that um, were embarrassing. And so for me, it was a journey of like, oh my goodness, I think that's what, I think that's me. I think that type is really, it really defines how I not just show up in life, but what motivates me to show up in certain ways in life. And that's not only unhelpful for me to keep doing that, that's unhelpful for my wife, my child, that's unhelpful for my church and the world. What would it look like for me to name those things, to bring them out into the light of Christ and to seek spiritual practices that can help me grow um, so that I can actually look more like Jesus in the years to come and not just bury this thing and hide it under the rug for the next 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And so I know that it's a touchy subject when you talk about the Enneagram, some people don't want to say their number, some Yeah, sure. Are, you know, sure. don't, uh, don't care to, I know when I took the Enneagram, um, I quickly connected with a three Yeah, and and so the three in your book, I think the word you use is achiever. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, um, so my first thought was, I don't know if that's right. Um, but under, but like you've been talking about under the surface, I knew that was it. It th thing, I, I, it, it gave language to my motives and yeah. things that I'd never had before. And so I, I did the Enneagram several times that always kept coming up. Yeah. And, um, what about you? What did, would you, do you care to share your, your I would love to. I'll say this because a lot of people ask me, hey, how do I know I'm this number and what's the right type? Um, there's a, like, I like to look at it as a funnel. So like a great place to start is, yeah, take that assessment, whether it's the ready one that's on the Enneagram Institute or, or um, the road back to your, whatever assessment you can find online, take that assessment. But that'll just put you in a ballpark. Again, because a lot of the answers you'll put, they come from a place where you're not even aware of what the, the answer to those questions are. So um, you, you might have a, an instinct on, well, I think I'll choose this answer for this question, but it just helps you get in the ballpark of I could be a three or a seven or an eight or whatever, right? So you, get, you start to narrow it down a little bit. And then um, what I recommend people do is look at the wings. So what's to the right and to the left of each of those numbers, because that's gonna give you some intel as well. I won't get into wings, but it's all free online. You can read yeah. that stuff and look it up. Um, it's, I think some of it's in my book as well. Um, but the one that Father Rohr told me back in the day, he said, you know that you know that you know that this is your core, is the one that brings you the greatest amount of humiliation. Mm. And it was like, oh, who wants to do that, right? <laughs> who has time for that? Um, but it's true. I mean, I lead workshops around the world on this stuff, and it is not uncommon that in every workshop there will be a time where people face their type and cry because they realize, oh my word, someone has just read my journal and is just calling me out. I've spent my whole life strategizing about how to suppress these things. And now someone's naming them. Yeah. I have shame. I have guilt. I feel humiliated. That can lead to a kind of real um, depression and anxiety. And here's the gift of it. As Christians, we have hope 
that God already knows those things about us and loves us anyway and wants to see us become whole. So I identify as an Enneagram three mm-hmm. as you, with a four wing, uh, which basically means I'm a recovering jerk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. and I'm constantly uh, trying to get people to think that I am talented and good and worthy of love, worthy of, um, you know, to be admired. And so I have to work really hard to make sure that um, uh, I'm not trying to control the way people feel about me and that I don't value myself for what I achieve and what I perform. Um, but I value myself as a beloved child of God. So let me say a quick thing about Enneagram um, personality versus identity. I, I do a chapter of this in my recent book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation, because there's a lot of misconceptions around the Enneagram. Uh, the first is that I am my number. You know, I am a three. That's all I am. That's all I'll ever be, right? Um, number one, you have all the types in you somewhere. But I like to tell people that your personality is not your identity. You're a beloved child of God. That's your identity. There's nothing you can do to change that. God loves you, that God loves you, that God loves you. It's amazing. Now, what your personality is, is a strategy. I'll say it clearly. Your personality is not your identity. Your personality is a strategy. It's what you have learned over the course of life through a world that's both beautiful but broken and mired in sin. We take on patterns and we do certain things to navigate this world. And so over the course of time, both through your genetic coding and through your personal experiences, you figure out strategies to cope and to thrive in life. We all do it differently. It's called your personality. Um, And it's beautiful and it's unique, uh, but it's also broken. And so I want to make sure people know you are not a number. You're a beloved child of God. And so that number can be helpful with your personality, but it's not who you are at the core root of your being. Yeah. But what that number can do, though, would it, would it be right to say that that number can expose things about me that, that I just might not be aware of? Is that? Yeah. Well, I, and the reason I say that is because I, I say you are not a number because when you discover your number, it yeah. can lead to shame. And it's, it's sort of like what happens in the garden where they start covering themselves up and start concealing. That's, that's the beginning of, by the way, concealing your mischief, right? You see Adam and Eve both like concealing um, because they they're aware that, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm inadequate. Um, and I think the invitation of our identity is to know that we're loved uh, no matter what, and that we can actually bring that stuff into the light for the spirit to change us. That that's where your personality comes in is to say, you know, yeah, I show up this way at a party and this is my strategy to show up. Um, and that is both healthy and there's parts of that that's unhealthy and I need to get curious about that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and what is it, you know, just the example that you gave, I think that's a, a great example because it's so common. It's every day. I just showing up at a party. Mm-hmm. What is it about knowing how I show up at a party that can, that can lead to uh, maybe a new path of transformation Yeah, that, that somebody just might not be aware of. I'll give you a concrete examples to this. So for those that identify Enneagram seven, parties, um, things like um, entertainment, the next trip, the next thrill. Um, Those can be really hard for sevens because sevens work really hard to bury pain from their past. And the way they do that is they look toward the future and they plan a life that's as pain-free as possible. And so um, sometimes um, parties can be strategies to escape reality. Uh, For fours, uh, parties can be really depressing places because you can see them as phony and maybe not being realistic about 
the hardship of life and um, you know, so fourth need to be aware of their own sort of proclivities of why you're avoiding a party or why you're in the corner and you're not actually interested in sort of putting yourself out there and getting to know more people and why you need to be pursued. There's all sorts of strategies that each of the types do um, at parties. Me as a three, I want everyone to like me. So what am I doing? I'm going around telling stories that all work in my favor of you know, things I've done in the past or ways that I want to compliment you, not because I think you're wonderful, but because I want you to think something about me. Yeah. So that's called manipulation. Yeah. And that's, that's not an integrous life. So it's helpful for me as a three that when I'm at a party, like I was at one last night, um, a dinner party on a porch here in Charleston, and there were about 20 of us. And it's a constant reminder to say, AJ, the goal of being here isn't to get people to like you. The goal of being here is to, is to love the other and to be curious about who they are and about what's going on in their life without any agenda of getting people to like me. Um, a two, for example, might want to show up and help serve the party because they feel like that's their only contribution that they can make and they want to be loved. And so sometimes they will do acts of love because they want to be loved in return. And that's a strategy. That's manipulative. So there's all sorts of things. I mean, it's amazing how simple we think life is, but really how complicated our motives are when we really get down to it of like, okay, why was I really doing that? I know I complimented that person, but did I really mean that? Or was I doing that because I wanted to control the way they feel about me? Now, I don't know if we should go around analyzing every single thing that we do, yeah. but I think that what the Enneagram shows us is that under everything we do, there's a reason why we're doing it or there's a reason we're not doing it. And so getting clear about that's really helpful for life. Yeah. I think one of the things that helped me with the Enneagram is, is to show the tendency that I have to try to perform. Yeah. And as, as a three. And so, so what happens, what's the next step? So, so the Enneagram's helping me, it's, it's helping me get to my motives. It's helping me get underneath the surface. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing new things about me. Um, the sinful self, the shadow side. And once I see those, once that's been identified, well, now what do I do? Yeah. So now I think that's when the journey begins. Okay. Uh, if you don't work your number, it's a waste of time. The idea of the Enneagram isn't to know your number and other people's numbers. So you can put them in a corner or throw it out at a par as, a, as a parlor trick of look what I know. And let's talk about numbers, blah, blah, blah. The Enneagram is never an end. It's always a means. Yeah. So when you discover your number, it's the beginning of your journey, not the end. And a lot of people are treating it as the end. And, uh, and that can create sort of a problem. So my suggestion, so let's just take threes, for example. Okay. So threes can say, okay, I have a tendency to perform, to show off, to, to gauge my emotional health based on whether I feel like I'm winning or losing in life. To doing, uh, twos are like this too, we do over be. We value doing over being. For threes, it's because we want more trophies. We want a bigger resume. We want the next notch. We want to be able to showcase to people why we are worthy of your attention and your, your honor. So uh, like the contemplative tradition has become really important for me as I follow Jesus of stillness, silence, and solitude, because my tendency as a three is to do what when I wake up? Check my social media, yeah. check my email, start my sermon. I mean, everything is about go, do, perform, achieve. And stillness, silence, and solitude invite me every day to abide, to be mm. still, to be loved. And that is a healthy place for me to start my day because it, it, it helps me frame that um, what you're doing throughout your day needs to be 
from the foundation of being loved by God, not trying to earn God's love, not trying to earn other people's love. And so as a three, I start my day um, reading the scripture, drinking French press coffee, which is really important for me, <laughs> and, uh, and being still and silent before the Lord. The Psalms talk often about waiting quietly before the Lord and stilling our souls. So that's become a really important practice for me because if I, if I don't do that at the first of my day, I'll get into the rush and I never will. I'll yeah. never stop long enough to get clear to the core of the fact that, no, 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 AJ, you don't have to earn love. You are loved already. Um, you don't have to earn identity. It's already been given to you. So very important truths that the Enneagram has helped me sort of um, apprehend. So each of, the each of the numbers in my book give two practices that are going to be helpful for your type, what I call upstream practice and downstream practice. I'll give you an example. Imagine taking your little raft and putting it into a river stream. Well, if you were to just sit there, the downstream, those are things that come easy for you. You don't have to fight against the current. There are downstream practices for every type. So like for the three, threes are really good at like learning things. We like to read books. We like to write. We like to teach. We like to read the Bible. We like to gain and acquire information they can help us look good. <laughs> um, what we're bad at is typically sitting and being, because that feels like a waste of time. I feel like there's other things we could be doing because we want to grow something. We want to change something. We want to achieve something. So that's my upstream practice. So if my downstream is reading, it's like, hey, that's not bad. Read books, AJ. But also don't forget your upstream practice, which is to be still and to wait before the Lord to sit for five minutes without anything to do, no phone, no Bible, no book, and just be with God. So every type gets two of these practices at least, and then a time during the church year that they need to pay attention to based on the church calendar, if you, understand, if you know that and, and, and care about that sort of pathway. Yeah. So, yeah. Because I, I, I've never seen a book that uh, you give those spiritual practices based on the number and then you even help people identify where they are in the biblical narrative characters and you have yeah. a chapter about evangelism yeah yeah i just thought so, yeah so starting with formation and and then i'll say a word about um what came after that oh biblical narratives and then i'll, I'll finish it with evangelism here um when we think about formation you know, one of the critiques I have on myself as a pastor and the church at large is that we try to batch spiritual formation. Okay. So we'll say to the church, you know, hey, read your Bible, uh, come to church, pray, and maybe give some money. And in 30 years, you'll be transformed. Most people after 30 years don't feel transformed. They just feel older. Yeah. And I've been curious, and this is what set my work off, is to say, hey, listen, um, maybe there's ways that our spiritual practices need to sort of um, correspond with our personalities. Maybe there's a uniqueness to our personalities that we need to take into consideration when we think about what spiritual practices can guide us into health. Because there's some types where nature is just, it has to happen for you to be healthy. You need to be in nature. There's others where contemplative spirituality is going to be important. There's others where, you know, journaling is more important because of the way in which you're wired. Uh, there's others that justice and, and, and service projects are really important. So how do we think about our spiritual formation? Not broadly. Uh, like, so when we pastors say, Hey, pray more as if there's one way to pray. Yeah. There's accessory yeah. prayer. There's prophetic prayer. There's healing prayer. There's all sorts of prayer. And, you know, most people think there's just one, one way to pray or one way to read the Bible, right. Or one way to worship. And it's amazing to me how we have this ancient great Christian tradition where we have all these practices 
And we've neglected them. And we think that there's only like two options if we really want to worship God. God is so mysterious and vast. Um, So helping people find that. Now, when it comes to the Bible, you know, I'm really careful to say, um, you know, David isn't a six, but there might be qualities of six that Peter or David exemplify, right? So we don't have enough information about any biblical character to say this is what they are, but we can see these sorts of qualities. And, you know, most people, when it comes to the Bible, they've just checked out because they feel like it's an ancient primitive book uh, that doesn't really have a lot of relevance for their life. And, and this is what the Enneagram is helpful for. Your context might be different. Our technology is different. Our situations in life are different than the ancient world. But I'll tell you this, our motives are the same. Hmm. We have the same stinking motives. Yeah, It just looks different in the 21st century. And so we can connect at a heart, gut, motive level with the ancients. And here's what it helps me do. It helps me find myself in the biblical story. It helps me say, oh my goodness, when King Saul did this, that's what I do. Yeah. Only it looked differently because I wasn't in ancient Israel back then, right? So it just helps me connect my heart to say, oh, this is what I do. This is what I would have done. I would have done the same thing as King Saul is a three. Um, so that's been helpful, I think, to help people reimagine that the scriptures are actually more relevant. And those, are, those stories are our stories more than we can imagine. Um, and then with evangelism, it's simply everybody's talking about the Enneagram. And I just want to suggest you know, nobody wants to talk about sin anymore, but people are very <laughs> desirous to talk about brokenness, um, yeah. both of what um, they do and what's been done to them. And I think the Enneagram can serve as a bridge, as a kind of gateway for people to start thinking about how to create better conversations using the Enneagram that can eventually help people to see their need for a savior. Um, those are things that I'm always looking for new bridges and fresh conversations with people. Yeah, yeah. So whether we realize it or not, our, our personality and identity, they, they are more important to our spiritual formation than we think that they are, aren't they? Oh, for sure. It's, it's, yeah. it's the beauty of the human person. It's how God created us. It's yeah. wonderful. And so, so that gets to the whole issue. You talk about this in your book, self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and more, you're starting to hear more people in the church, it sounds like, talk about self-awareness. Uh, why is that important? Why is self-awareness something that, that Christians need to grow in, need to take seriously? Yeah, we're often unaware of how we show up and are being perceived by others. So A, it's, it's helpful to do that so that you understand how the other person across the table sees you. You know, eights are notorious to having an aggressive personality, and it's usually motivated by really good, true things, but it can be perceived as aggressive and sort of off-putting. Um, and we all manifest in certain ways. So it's not just, I'm not just putting eights in the corner here. Yeah. Um, but I, I, think, I think one of the things it does is it helps us to name some things that we used to call normal. And um, when we name those things and realize, oh, this isn't who I am, but I don't want this to stay like it is. I want this to grow. I don't want my daughter to continue to experience me as a crabby dad for the next 10 years. I would love for my daughter to reflect on her childhood to know that, oh, my dad grew in love and in wisdom and stature, just as Jesus did, um, as we're told in the gospels. And so um, becoming self-aware, uh, we all have our biases, we all have our blind spots. Uh, that is the beginning of saying, okay, I'm not willing to just suppress this. I want to become aware of how you perceive me. And I want to heal that if it is an impediment for getting in the way of us running together and loving one another well. 
um, or if I'm not exemplifying Christ, um, I need to become aware of that rather than just saying, well, I'm just a six and it's how I am, yeah. or I'm just that way. I'm just angry or I'm just this or that. It's like, no, 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 that might be true. You might be just that right now, but that's not, that's not all you can be. Like there is healing that's available. And so that's really important to become self-aware in that way. I like to use the Enneagram for leadership. So if any of your listeners lead organizations or teams, or if you're on a team, um, for those of us that lead meetings, for example, we think that our leadership style should be everyone's leadership style. We think that this is because I do it this way. This is the way it should be done. I'll give you an example. I was, um, I used to be a pastor of a church in Grand Rapids called Mars Hill. And Mars Hill was full of fives and nines. So like people that are internal processors, not necessarily verbal right away. They like to go away, think, meditate, um, create some sort of brainstorm session. They like to be alone and to think and to be in their thoughts. And I'm like, Mr. Storyboard, whiteboard this, let's hash it out. And I realized after my first meeting, this was, I don't know, five, seven years ago, um, I was wanting to hash out new vision with them. And they were all just looking at me like I had like 10 eyeballs. And I left that meeting and I went home and I said to Elena, my wife, I said, I don't think it went very well. I don't think this team likes me very much because I started whiteboarding and nobody had any comments to make. And a week later, I start getting all of these comments. I start getting all of this input. And I realized, AJ, these people are different in their personality than you. Hmm. These people are different in how they function. You can't expect your personality to be what everybody's is. And what I realized is that their ideas, when I give them time and space, are actually better than mine that I create in real time on a storyboard. And so it's things like that that's really helpful, whether you're a leader, whether you're a spouse, whether you... Um, a student, whatever you might do. It's that sense of being able to become aware of why you do what you do and how you need to understand that other people might do things differently than you. And I need to value that. And there's actually a, a, a distinction that's really good that not everyone needs to be like us. Yeah. AJ, to go back to something that you said earlier, you, you talked about batching spiritual growth, that we, we have a tendency to do that. What is the difference, or, or do you think there is a difference, between spiritual formation and the way that we usually think about spiritual growth? Well, I think spiritual growth, I, A, I think they're very close, so I wouldn't want to split hairs here. Um, I think a lot of people view spiritual growth as transactional. Okay. So I give here, I show up there, God does this, I do that, kind of quid pro quo. I think what I like about the idea of spiritual formation is the process of relationality. So it's relation, not transaction. I'll be clear about this. Practices aren't the point. Yeah. Uh, the presence is the point, the presence of God. That's where, that's where transformation happens. It's in the presence of God where transformation takes place. It's that exposure to the divine that illumines light in us and transforms us over the course of our lives. Um, and practices are simply the sails that we hoist in order for the spirit to move and to flow in us. So the practices themselves, it's not like, hey, I'm asking you to walk through nature and then suddenly you're going to come back a different person. What is that nature? All it is, what, hiking, that presence, that practice, all it does is it puts you in a greater symphony to experience the presence of God. The same thing with the Bible. The Bible's not the point. The Bible points to the point, And that's the living presence of God that wants to be with us in the Bible graphs us into that story and it reminds us who we are. So formation for me is a kind of lifelong relational journey. 
And so I think that's the flow that we, that, that we as, I want to have a kind of look for myself. It's not about, I need to get up tomorrow and get everything right. It's no, no, you need to get up tomorrow and, and find ways that you can practice being in God's presence. And if you'll do that over the course of life, hopefully we are formed and transformed and reformed um, into the likeness of Christ more and more every day. But that's a very long committed spiritual journey. And I think that's what I like about formation is that it just feels like, Hey, take your time. God gave us time so that not everything has to happen at once, right? We are justified instantly, instantaneously, but God loves, God created time. He loves it. He gives us the course of our lives to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and to grow, right? So I like spiritual growth. I don't think it's a bad term either. I think they can be synonymous. Formation feels like it's a, a sort of labyrinth or a sort of lab that I get to be in with God for the rest of my life and that God is patient with me. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think there are some things that have shaped the church, if you will, um, in this moment that, that makes spiritual formation something that we need to rediscover, you know, like mm-hmm. voices that have shaped the church forces that have shaped the church. And almost that this is a moment we need, we need to go back to the, these practices. Yeah. I mean, I think, so we come out of the reformation period, which was needed. Um, justification by faith to be clarified was needed. I think a lot of Christians are waking up to the reality that justification is is only the beginning of a journey that, you know, I grew up in a church context where it was about being saved and the goal of every church service every week was modeled out every week is to come down to the altar and be saved. And I think that is a massive part of spiritual life. However, um, we have done that often to a suppression to the work of the spirit um, and to the work of sanctification. Uh, So we talked a lot about glorification someday back there and and justification for salvation now, but it's that sanctification, that formation, that discipleship that was often so omitted in the local church, at least that I grew up in. And I think a lot of people are um, sort of waking up right now and realizing I, I, I want to grow. I want to change. I want to be whole. I want shalom. I don't just want to go somewhere when I die. I, I want to, to, to be more, I want to be whole. Um, and that's where a lot of this stuff comes in um, that are the mystics and, you know, even in the medieval period, they were much more aware of these things than we are. Um, we can be very dualistic that you get saved and you go to heaven. <laughs> and there's this whole life of unpacking the divine life within you and becoming as first Peter, second Peter one, four says partakers of the divine nature that we partake and participate in the life of God. And it, it, it's designed to expand us into Christ's image over the course of our lives. So that's really beautiful and interesting for me to consider for my own life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people I would say are really into this. Uh, you know, Richard Foster, Dallas Willard, uh, Adele Calhoun, uh, my, my dear friend, John Mark Comer, does a lot of good work in this area. There's so many people right now that are writing really good resources um, on this. Uh, if you're interested in the contemplative journey, I, I wrote a little book. It's like 60 pages uh, called Quiet, Hearing God Amidst the Noise. Okay. It's my journey into contemplative prayer and learning how to be still. So I give like practical step-by-step scriptural invitations for people to say, okay, what does it mean to sit in God's presence and be still? Because I got a thousand things on my mind. How do I, how do I calm my racing brain down long enough to, to, to just be loved, right? So that deals with all of that. And that's on Amazon. That's an easy little pickup. But I, I love that conversation of 
of talking about being with God. Yeah. Do you think that part of the resurgence in the contemplative uh, in the church today is because we've, hey, we, we've read our Bibles, we've prayed, and we've done all these things. And again, those things are great, but, mm-hmm. but we're sensing under the surface there, there is more. Do you think that that's part yeah, of it? Yeah, I, I think people are waking up to the reality that their lives are really hurried. Yeah. Not a lot of space. Um, COVID is a terrible tragedy. For some of us, it has actually opened more space, though, to, um, to, to realize, like, well, maybe I don't have to take that trip, or maybe I don't have to, maybe I can uh, grab a few more moments of time and space uh, during my day to pray or to read or to slow down, to notice my family. Um, so I think that there is a huge invitation right now where people are realizing our lives are out of control. And more technology isn't freeing up our lives. It's actually demanding more of our attention. And our attention spans seem to be waning. I think people are crying out for a sense of rest, a sense of Sabbath, a sense of being able to enjoy, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And I think they're realizing that the pace of the lives we've been living don't afford us that privilege. Um, So there's a real cry, a real hunger, I think, for that in people. And they're realizing that maybe what I'm looking for isn't more information. It's more transformation. Maybe what I'm looking for isn't about doing more, but actually about doing less. And sometimes doing less is about being more. Um, So all these types of things, I think, are just our cultural moment that has really um, helped create the kind of cocktail that we right now find ourselves in. Yeah. So what are some ways that, that churches can, can lean into this space? Uh, even in your book, you talk about how you used, you've used the Enneagram in, in churches that you've been a part of. Would you recommend that churches use the Enneagram? How can they begin to lean into these kind of these things? Yeah. W- one of my rules for the Enneagram and on my workshops is never become the Enneagram church. Yeah. The gospel is hard enough to communicate. Um, <laughs> it can create insider outsider language. People feel excluded if they come into your body and, everyone is talking about, you know, all the preaching examples are about the Enneagram or whatever. It's already people feel like, oh, I don't belong here. Um, but I, I think workshops are really important, even small groups for those that want to go deep into this and, and to learn more um, so that you can opt in rather than just like being talked at with the Enneagram when you go into a church service. Um, so if you can opt into something and know what you're getting into and, and know, okay, this is about the Enneagram. I, I'm opting into that. I'm going to that group. I'm going to that workshop. It's really, really good. Um, but yeah, I, I, think, I think this is just a tool that the church can use to really understand how, um, like the end goal in all of my workshops is that people design their own rule of life. Yeah. Their own spiritual rhythm is, is it, you know, rule of life is just a fancy word for spiritual rhythm, their own habits, their own spiritual disciplines of saying on these days at this time in this place, I'm going to commit to showing up with God in this way. That's a rule of life. And I want people to take responsibility for their own formation. It's not my job. It's not your job, Mark, to form them for them. It's your job to expose them to all of the beautiful buffet of, of, of practices that God has given us to experience God's presence. And for them to sort out, how do I take responsibility for my own formation and design my life in such a way that I can grow and actually make a greater contribution for the glory of God in this world? And so I love people to leave with a worksheet that I'll lead them through where they can decide what practices, what days, what rhythms are going to help them grow and they'll commit to it. Right. So that's where I think the good work of the church can really come in is helping people design their own spiritual rhythm 
so that they can become more whole as a part of the body of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. So AJ, just a, a few more questions. How, somebody that's watching this, listening to this, they've come to the end and they said, all right, I, the Enneagram's new to me, but I'm in, I, I want to try it out. Is there a place online maybe that you would recommend? Hey, if, if anybody's never done the Enneagram, you should go to this place. Here it is. Try this one. Yeah. I mean, um, the Enneagram Institute, if you just Google those two words, that's going to lead you um, into that. There's a a $12 test there called the RETI, R-H-E-T-I. It's an acronym. I don't remember what it stands for. Um, But uh, that's a, that's a, that's not a Christian sort of organization. There's a lot of really good Christian organizations right now um, that you can find, like if you look up Enneagram and gospel or Enneagram and Christian, you'll find organizations okay. that have an online presence. Um, and then also <laughs> I bought the Ennea app, E-N-N-E-A yeah. app, A-P-P. Yep. Um, Elena and I use it cause it, it helps you understand your marriage and how together your numbers flow. So a lot of people are interested in that kind of stuff. A question I get a lot is like, hey, what types are good to marry what type, <laughs> right? Did I marry the wrong type? <laughs> and it's like, here's, here's the secret of marriage. Marriage is not about what type of person you marry. Whatever type of person you marry, uh, you're creating something unique that the world's never seen before between the two of you becoming one, which is really inspiring. But the second thing is this, that what you need for a healthy marriage isn't to marry the right type. It's that if both parties are committed to humility, every type is is comparable with every other type. No type goes well with any other type if there's not humility in a marriage. So that's why I'm constantly telling married couples that until you're willing to be humble, um, your marriage is not going to thrive. And so no matter who you marry, what type it is, it's not going to work. It's not going to be great. (laughs) But with humility, any marriage and any type combination can be a wonderful declaration of God's glory to the world. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's great. AJ, I love uh, talking about these things. I feel like we could go on, uh, but I want to honor your time. Before we started to uh, record, you mentioned that you have a website, ajsherrill.org. Yep. Yep. ajsherrill.org. Okay. And if somebody wanted to connect with you online, uh, where could they find you at? On yeah, there's actually, there's a little form there you can fill out and that goes to email. Um, also, I, I'm the lead pastor of St. Peter's Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. So I believe my, my contact stuff is uh, available there as well. Okay, great, great. Awesome. AJ, it's been great. Thanks so much for being on the Churchology Podcast. Yeah, so good to meet you, Mark. Grace and peace. The Enneagram is a topic of a lot of conversations, and so maybe you're new to it or you've been familiar with it for a while. I love how AJ helps us to see how the Enneagram is a tool for spiritual formation and it helps us to grow in self-awareness. I know I've definitely seen that for me in my case. It just helped give a lot of language to motivations and, and things that are going on under the surface that sometimes we either don't deal with or we just don't know how to deal with them. So the Enneagram and Spiritual Formation, pick it up right now. Make sure to check out the show notes. We've got links to everything that AJ mentioned in the episode, also how you can connect with him. And I would love to hear what you thought about today's episode. So let's keep the conversation going on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, at ChurchologyPod, and we're on Twitter, at ChurchologyPod1. 
Now, next Tuesday, we will be back with a brand new episode. Next Tuesday, we're talking to John Sanders. John is an author. He's a coach of pastors and church planters. John's a podcaster, and he hosts several podcasts, including the Small Town Big Church podcast. That's all about celebrating small towns, uh, rural churches, and leaders. And the conversation that John and I had, it went to a lot of different places about the church. Uh, John has a really unique vision and voice for the church, uh, one that I honestly haven't heard before. So I'm really excited for you to check it out. It comes out next Tuesday. So to make sure that you don't miss it, go ahead and hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast. And also, if you've got a second, leave a rating and review. That just helps more people discover the Churchology podcast so that they can be a part of the conversation. So that's it for today's episode. We will be back next Tuesday with John Sanders right here on the Churchology Podcast.